I probably started hearing from people about two weeks ago, people on social media just saying, can you, can you help? A lot of us have started hearing from people we knew in Afghanistan or even people just reaching out to us randomly. But I don't think that any of us knew how quickly it was going to happen. That's Kelly Kennedy, a U.S. Army veteran. And after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, a journalist embedded with U.S. troops. Kennedy is now the managing editor of The War Horse, a news outlet focused on the military. She told us she was prepared for some of the chaos as the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, but nothing like this. I think that's part of the conversation now is things broke down so incredibly fast. I think we were just floored by how quickly things happened. Kennedy and her friends and colleagues in the military are far from the only ones struggling to make sense of recent events. America's 20-year campaign in Afghanistan started as a military operation, but it became a lot more than that. Over time, all sorts of experts, academics, and humanitarian aid workers poured in to help build a new government, reform the economy, construct buildings and roads, or campaign for women's rights. That's how Lena Abarafi ended up in Afghanistan in 2002. After setting up an office for a women's NGO, she stayed around for four years. And this week, she's been hearing from the women she got to know there. They're terrified. They're in hiding. They're in lockdown. The Taliban are going door to door. I've heard about pink marks on doors to highlight women activists, NGO leaders, those who've been outspoken against the Taliban, political leaders, activists in any form, threatening that the Taliban will deal with them later. Welcome to Skim This. On today's show, we'll skim the latest from Afghanistan to try to understand how the Taliban took over so quickly, what's in store for Afghans going forward, and whether the U.S. can evacuate more people from the country before finishing our withdrawal. Later, we'll recap the latest on COVID booster shots and look at what new census data says about the changing face of America. And we'll wrap things up by trying our hands at true crime for a story about a mystery that stumped the entire U.S. intelligence community for five years. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with the news of the week, Afghanistan. Events have moved fast, so we need to take a step back and try to skim all of this. It's a lot, but we're going to make this make sense, I promise. First, how did Afghanistan fall so quickly to the Taliban? On last week's show, we reported that in just a few days, the Taliban had seized two-thirds of Afghanistan. Now, they control essentially the entire country. That includes cities and bases the U.S. spent years defending alongside Afghan troops. And yet, one by one, these cities fell to the Taliban, in many cases without the Afghan army even fighting back. We're now learning that part of why this happened so quickly was that the Taliban had been negotiating the surrender of certain cities for months. Reportedly, in some cases, it literally paid for surrender, and the result was almost as orderly as handing over a set of keys. It didn't help that many Afghan soldiers and police officers reported going months without pay, with their salaries eaten up by corruption. 
The defeat of the Afghan army was sudden, though, given what we've heard, it shouldn't have been surprising. A U.S. government report last month concluded that the U.S. actually knew the Afghan army wasn't as capable as we let on. For years, U.S. generals told Congress that the $83 billion and counting invested in the Afghan army was paying off, even though they had no evidence to prove it. The same report found that officials in Washington and politicians on Capitol Hill like to talk about the good news, but not the bad news. Years of that left the U.S. with an overly rosy view of what the Afghan army could do. It also left people like journalist and former Army vet Kelly Kennedy unprepared for something she says she ought to have seen coming. I think the big conversation we've been having is academically, we all knew this was coming. If you studied that part of the world in our past and our military past, it didn't look like things were going to end well from the very beginning. But I think we were just floored by how quickly things happened. And now I feel concerned about why we were floored by that, why we didn't have that information, why we didn't know that the soldiers were going to lay down their weapons and, and fall in line. So that's some background on why Afghanistan fell so easily to the Taliban, despite 20 years of U.S. investments into the Afghan military. Which brings us to our second question. In the final days before the U.S. withdrawal is supposed to be complete, can we at least get people out safely? Over the past week, more than 4,000 American troops have been ordered to help secure the airport in the Afghan capital, Kabul. In a speech on Monday, President Biden laid out their mission. Our troops are working to secure the airfield and ensure continued operation of both the civilian and military flights. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens who have been living and working in Afghanistan. We'll also continue to support the safe departure of civilian personnel. This is going to be tough. There are reportedly up to 15,000 Americans still in Afghanistan. We don't know how many will stay, but thousands still need to get out. On top of that, the U.S. has said for months that before it leaves, it would scale up something called the Special Immigrant Visa Program. That program would resettle several thousand Afghans who helped out the U.S. and its allies during the war. If those people remained in Afghanistan, the fear was they'd be targeted or killed by the Taliban out of retribution. But if you've seen images from Kabul's airport this week, you'd know this massive evacuation and resettlement plan isn't going well. Some footage has almost been impossible to watch, as terrified civilians desperately tried to board departing planes. Most were unsuccessful. Some clung to the wheels of military aircraft after being turned away as passengers. Two were seen falling to their death as the planes climbed over the city. In recent days, U.S. troops have restored some order at the airport. But as CNN journalist Clarissa Ward reported on Wednesday, it's the scene outside the airport where the Taliban controls things that's now the issue. The gunfire is pretty much constant as the Taliban tries to push people back. I, I, I've covered all sorts of crazy situations. This was mayhem. This was nuts. This is impossible for an ordinary civilian even if they have their paperwork, no way they're running that gauntlet. No way they're going to be able to navigate that. It's, it's very dicey, it's very dangerous, and it's completely unpredictable. 
The U.S. is apparently taking the Taliban at its word that people can pass safely to the airport. But what if they continue to renege on that? What if some Americans can't even get to Kabul to be evacuated? How long might the U.S. overstay its departure date if the evacuation isn't finished? For now, the answer to each of those is, we'll see. So that's the final mission for the U.S. in Afghanistan and the serious challenges standing in its way. Which is a good segue to our final question. What do we know about how the Taliban are going to run things? The Taliban seems to want people to keep calm and carry on, and they said things won't change too much. They're promising that religious minorities and anyone who worked with the U.S. will be protected. They've also said women can stay in school and that they won't give safe haven to terror groups like al-Qaeda. But whether the Taliban lives up to that is anyone's guess. Instead of taking the Taliban at their word, experts say, look at what they did when they were in power from 1996 to 2001. The Taliban had a notorious record of strictly enforcing hardline social rules. In the 90s, the Taliban forced men to grow beards and women to wear garments covering their entire body and face. They largely force women to stay in their homes, ban them from schools, and from holding jobs. They also outlawed sports and television, along with most music. Lina Abirafi, the executive director of the Arab Institute for Women, who we heard from earlier, says she remembers the Taliban's first rise to power. With the Taliban came an extremely radical, conservative, fundamentalist interpretation of what they think is an Islamic edict around women's rights, fully covered, no presence in public life, certainly no presence in, in political and economic life. Abu Rafi also remembers when things started to change after the U.S. toppled the Taliban. As women and girls returned to public life, to schools and to jobs, women even earned roles in the government. If the Taliban return to their old ways, Abu Rafi says she's hopeful that Afghan women are in a stronger position to fight for their rights than before. Tools like social media could also give the world a better view of what's happening. She also says, Given that the rules of social life in Afghanistan have yo-yoed for decades, from the days of miniskirts in Kabul in the 70s to Taliban rule in the 90s, and now this latest reversal, women who've lived through all of that are resilient. But Abi Rafi is most worried about younger women, girls born since the Taliban were last in power and who've known nothing else. There's no hierarchy to the heartbreak right now. It is all so terrible and I'm devastated. But, you know, it would be girls in school because they just started. And maybe they missed all the years of conflict. They missed all the years of contested rights. Maybe they missed all the Taliban years. So they grew up believing they were born into supposed freedom. And now, all of a sudden, someone has to explain to them that they can't go to school anymore. They can't play sports anymore. They can't play music anymore. They can't run in the streets anymore. So they're the ones who don't know what things were like before. They don't have the experience. So to me, that's, that is probably the most heartbreaking because they're the ones that will lose so much because their lives are just starting. To learn more about what Taliban control of Afghanistan could mean for Afghan women, We've got a new explainer up on our website at theskim.com. And if you're listening to this and want to do something to help, we asked around, and here's what we learned. First, if you live near Seattle, Washington, D.C., Dallas, or Houston, Afghan refugees are currently arriving in your city, and charities are signing people up to offer airport rides, provide food, and more. 
Airbnb is also enlisting hosts to offer people in crisis a place to stay. For any lawyers out there, you can be the next Amal Clooney and can sign up to assist with special immigrant visa cases. Groups across the country are looking for legal help. And to help those still in Afghanistan, the nonprofit Miles for Migrants lets you donate airline miles to help relocate people without the money to buy their own plane ticket. And we have to shout out the Afghan Journalist Safety Committee, which is providing safe houses and shelters to allow reporters in Afghanistan to keep doing their jobs. And finally, we keep hearing this. If you're frustrated and feel like the U.S. should be doing more to help the Afghan people, get involved. There's a major campaign underway to convince the Biden administration to provide refuge for more Afghans in the U.S. Things like refugee policy might feel set in stone, but they're not. And especially during periods of crisis, research shows public opinion can lead to major changes. And don't worry. If you missed any of that, we've got links to all the groups we mentioned in our show notes. All right, let's get to two headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, turning now to Haiti, where the Caribbean country is reeling from a devastating earthquake. Here's the context. On Saturday, a 7.2 magnitude earthquake hit Haiti. The death toll has been climbing all week and now stands at over 2,000 people, already making it the deadliest earthquake in the world this year. Survivors are in need of clean water, healthcare, and shelter after tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. And this latest earthquake is straining Haiti's hospitals, which were already struggling with COVID outbreaks. Not to mention, Haiti's government is also still dealing with political and social instability after its president was assassinated earlier this summer. And on top of all of that, Tropical Storm Grace hit the island this week, further complicating relief efforts. If this story has you saying deja vu, you're right. Haiti has still been rebuilding from a pair of other major natural disasters, including a 2010 earthquake and a 2016 hurricane. Besides being earthquake and hurricane prone, Haiti's fragile buildings and dense urban areas mean natural disasters often have even more devastating effects. It's also one of the poorest countries in the world, and millions have little or no access to healthcare. Right now, it's TBD how Haiti plans to rebuild. So far, officials are asking for international help, and the U.S. answered the call, deploying a response team and helping with relief efforts. But there will be a lot more help that's needed. Okay, here's our second headline. A big data breach at T-Mobile U.S. Here's what you need to know. On Wednesday, T-Mobile said, yup, hackers stole the personal data, including the names, birthdays, and crucially the social security numbers of more than 40 million former customers, as well as almost 8 million current customers. T-Mobile now says it's closed the access point in their system that hackers got into, and it says it's in the process of notifying those affected and resetting pins for those accounts. Still, if you have or had T-Mobile, that's probably not super reassuring. And you might be thinking, WTF should I do now? We won't sugarcoat it. If hackers have access to your personal data, that can be bad for you and your wallet. But it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. Though, we gotta warn you up front. 
you might need to use some of your precious me time to do some of these things. In the case of this hack, we know social security numbers were exposed. So the first step is to try to stop any fraud from happening in the first place. Call one of the credit bureaus like Experian, TransUnion, or Equifax and ask them to put a fraud alert on your account. That'll show any future lenders for a new loan or credit card application that you're on the lookout for identity fraud, and they should be careful before rubber stamping anything. If that doesn't work and there ends up being social security fraud associated with your account, it's time to pull in Uncle Sam. Report any social security-related fraud or scams to the Office of the Inspector General, as well as to the IRS. You can Google how to do that. In addition, be sure to let the Federal Trade Commission know via identitytheft.gov. You can also go to your local police station to file a report. That's a lot, but remember, the government's probably not going to help you out if they don't know there's a problem in the first place. But even if you're more of an AT&T or Verizon person, there are a few best practices to follow to keep your info safe. First, stay vigilant and protect your money. Treat sketchy emails and calls with caution and keep an eye on your bank accounts and credit reports for anything fishy. Alert your bank if charges aren't adding up and don't wait to replace a card if it's lost or stolen. As for passwords, don't ignore that Google pop-up that says your passwords might be compromised and change that password you set in ninth grade to something way stronger that a hacker couldn't guess by looking you up. Sorry, no pet names or maiden names allowed. Turning on multi-factor identification also gives your passwords an added layer of protection. If you're panicking a little right now, don't worry. We've got a guide that goes into all of this. We'll link to it in our show notes. Remember when life was as simple as first COVID shot, then second COVID shot, and you're done? Yeah, not so fast. COVID-19 booster shots are coming. A third shot, a booster shot. Vaccine booster shots. Yep, more shots. It's time to talk boosters and recap what you need to know in 60 seconds. This week, Team Biden rolled out its plan to start giving Americans COVID-19 booster shots as soon as next month. But listen up for some key details. First, for now, this is only for people who received an mRNA vaccine, aka two doses of Pfizer or two doses of Moderna. Anyone on Team J&J, you'll likely get a booster before long, but this doesn't really apply to you yet. Second, your booster will come eight months after your second dose, probably not before. And third, the order of operations here is likely going to mirror how things went down in the spring, with healthcare workers, the elderly, and people with pre-existing conditions going first. So be patient. And if you're saying, thanks for the deeds, but why is a booster necessary? That's because research shows the effectiveness of COVID vaccines may decrease with time. New data from Israel found that for seniors vaxxed back in January, the Pfizer vaccine is now only 55% effective at stopping severe disease well below earlier numbers. But the World Health Organization says it doesn't see the scientific need for boosters just yet, and that instead of giving out third shots, wealthy countries should help those who haven't even received a single shot. Regardless, the U.S. is pushing ahead and reportedly has at least 100 million doses already set aside for boosters, meaning you're probably on the booster guest list even if you haven't RSVP'd. 
How'd we do? Want us to skim another headline from the week's news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Hey, skimmers. Before we get back to the show, we wanted to let you know that the Happiness Lab is back for a brand new season. Yale's Dr. Lori Santos shares surprising research and inspiring stories that will change the way we think about happiness. She talks to 80s movie heartthrob Rob Lowe about the benefits and pitfalls of nostalgia. She hears from Lady Gaga's mom about how a simple act of kindness by a fan inspired the singer. You'll also get a deep dive into fun. Lori asks, where's all the fun in our everyday lives? And why do we never seem to have enough of it? Check out brand new episodes of The Happiness Lab wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to the show. Late last week, we got the results of the 2020 census. Quick recap. The census is that form we fill out as a country once every 10 years, and it gives us a snapshot of America's demographic makeup and how it's changing. Last time we got data was back in 2010, when we were watching the season finale of The Hills or downloading the beta version of Instagram. A lot's changed since then, so we wanted to break it down into three quick things you need to know. Okay, our first key finding from the 2020 census is that people are leaving small towns behind. The data shows that basically all of the country's population growth occurred in large urban areas. Around 80% of metro areas had population increases, while rural communities saw their populations shrink. And we can't forget about the burbs. Because growth in major suburbs was even faster than the growth in cities. This is happening in places like Texas and Arizona, along with coastal states like New York and California. So that's thing to know number one. The second thing is that while some regions are growing, like cities, the South, and the West, the overall U.S. population grew at the slowest rate since the 1930s. We can chalk that up to a few things, including a decline in immigration, more older Americans, shorter life expectancies, and a falling birth rate. As for the third thing we need to know about the census, this one's made a lot of headlines recently. It's that the U.S. is more diverse and multiracial than ever. 43%. That's the share of people of color within the U.S. population last year, a big increase from the 34% back in 2010. Diversity is also rising in nearly every area coast to coast, and America's white population declined for the first time ever. These numbers can be explained by a few things. The first is pretty simple. Growing racial and ethnic groups, in particular Asians and Hispanics. And second, the way people define themselves is changing too. Over the past decade, the number of Americans who identify as multiracial jumped by 127%. Social scientists crunching the numbers have said, part of this is, yes, there are more multiracial people being born. But the latest census also offered way more options for people to describe their racial background. So people who previously may have just chosen white don't have to do so anymore. And yet, some experts say people of color were probably undercounted in the latest census. Former President Trump's ultimately unsuccessful attempt to put a citizenship question in the census likely still deterred responses from people worried about the government knowing their immigration status. Government distrust within certain minority communities and the early suspension of door-to-door -door visits by census workers because of the pandemic could have also played a role as well. 
So despite this data painting a rich snapshot of what a changing America looks like, some experts believe it's still short of a complete picture. Okay, so now that we know all of this, what happens between now and 2030 when we do it all again? Well, all this data has a big impact on American politics. That's because the census is used for drawing voting districts, which can impact which party has power in Congress or who your representative is. And the redistricting deadline is coming up in a bunch of places, so state politicians are getting ready to get out their pencils and their maps and get to work. But besides that, the census data also informs some other really important stuff, like how hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funding is distributed for things like schools, roads, hospitals, and other public services. So if you took a few minutes to complete last year's census, just know filling it out really does make a difference. Our final story today is a cold case, a mystery that's gone unsolved for the past five years. And this true crime tale isn't about a small town murder. I could feel this sound in my head. It was in intense pressure on both of my temples. At the same time, I heard this low humming sound and it was oscillating. And I remember looking around for where this sound was coming from because it was painful. That's Catherine Warner, an American diplomat who was working in China in late 2017. As she explained to CBS News, she was woken up one night by a pulsing, humming sound she couldn't identify. Those sounds returned every night. And the longer they went on, the worse she felt. Catherine says she began to suffer from vomiting, headaches, exhaustion, and nosebleeds. As her health worsened, her mom Laura even flew to China to take care of her. Then, as Laura told NBC News in 2018, she started experiencing symptoms too. We heard a very low pulsing sound in the living room. Our heads would pulse. You would feel like you would want to regurgitate. You could become instantly paralyzed, instantaneously uh, fatigued. Things got even stranger when their dogs started showing symptoms. They would be shivering under the bed when we returned to the apartment. They would vomit blood. They didn't want to go back into the apartment after long walks. And they would run down the hallway and stop just where the living room begins and just sit there, and their heads would move simultaneously. We were so scared. By mid-2018, the U.S. State Department evacuated a handful of staffers from the same consulate that Catherine worked at. All of them likely displayed similar health issues. For many U.S. diplomats, this mysterious illness is causing long-term consequences. Brain scans of more than 20 affected diplomats reportedly revealed changes to the structure of their brains that didn't match any known illness. A scientist involved in another study said the damage looked like a concussion without a concussion. Catherine Werner is reportedly one of more than 100 U.S. diplomats, troops, and spies to have been affected by this mystery illness. 
And five years later, this case still hasn't been cracked. But we can retrace the steps of this crime to a place far away from China, all the way to the island of Cuba. New developments in that investigation into what caused U.S. officials to fall ill in Cuba. The United States has ordered 60% of its staff to leave its embassy in Havana. The so-called Havana syndrome, unexplained health incidents. The first U.S. diplomats to experience these weird symptoms were stationed in Cuba. U.S. diplomats aren't exactly popular there. The two countries have had tense relations for decades and have had a long history of spying on each other. As the U.S. investigated what it called Havana Syndrome, a theory began to emerge that another U.S. frenemy was potentially at the center of these illnesses miles away. By one account, Russia was a natural suspect with a plausible motive. As a longtime friend of Cuba, Russia would probably be rooting for Cuba to have bad blood with the U.S. And it would also probably want bad blood between the U.S. and China. Russia could also be tied to the weapon. During the Cold War, Russia apparently pointed microwave radiation at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow to try to figure out what was going on inside. And some experts believe that Russia has kept on researching what are known as direct energy weapons. Could that explain what U.S. officials experienced in Cuba and China? Was Russia trying out a new prototype? Was it trying to harm U.S. officials using microwaves? Or was this merely a spying operation, and those weird symptoms people reported were just nasty side effects? We don't know. But as reports of Havana Syndrome popped up in China in 2017 and then in Vienna, Austria this year, it seemed like a powerful global suspect like Russia had to be behind this. As U.S. officials tirelessly worked the case and tried to find evidence to back up this theory, they didn't have to travel far to find their next crime scene. Because Havana Syndrome spread to the U.S. According to CNN, late last year, two members of the National Security Council reported symptoms after being near the White House. One had such severe symptoms, they sought medical attention immediately. With these attacks potentially occurring right here at home, why is it taking so long for the U.S. to get to the bottom of this? Reportedly, one reason the Havana Syndrome case went cold in recent years was because many of the people affected were involved in highly secretive work. Spies can't just announce, I was in this place at this time when I started feeling sick. Kind of blows their cover. So top officials say they're still stuck. In the meantime, the longer Havana syndrome goes unexplained, the more frustrated diplomats are getting with their own government, wondering what's taking so long. Reportedly, some U.S. diplomats are even avoiding jobs that they fear could put them in harm's way. And who wouldn't be scared when, after five years of investigating, the entire U.S. intelligence community still has more questions than answers? Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help from Sajin Coriellis. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. 
The Skim's senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts. 